Time for some music. We are working our way through the years, and here we are at 1991. These are just some of the bands that did great work in '91. There are others, and we might talk about them in other episodes. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week we look at Clouds, Died Pretty, and Club Hoy. If you grew up in Australia, chances are you owned a piece of bamboo clothing. You definitely know their work. The Surf and Street brand had a distinctive, bright Australian flavour. They matched the colourful swimwear of Australians down to the bright neon zinc we had to paint on our noses to protect us from the sun that was trying to kill us. I'm sure I had a pair of mambo board shorts at some point. Probably best of all is a cartoon farting dog that most Australians would recognise. This whole podcast would probably make a nice chapter in a book about Australian counterculture, and that book would probably open with a chapter about Mambo. Mambo has a couple of key rock and roll connections. Regmont Bassa is probably still the most famous artist for the brand, and he was the guitar player for 80s band Mental As Anything. Other staff included Spencer P. Jones from Beast of Bourbon and crowded house bassist Nick Seymour. Oh, and Mambo's founder, Dare Jennings, also founded Phantom Records and played a role in the careers of legendary bands like The Sunny Boys, Hoodoo Gurus and The Hummingbirds. We already had Dare pop up in episode 2 of this podcast where we talked about record stores. The company was pretty rock and roll. Also working there were staff artists Jody Phyllis and Peter Oxley. The latter was a member of The Sunny Boys. Jody had quit school to work at Mambo. She also loved music and had been itching to start a band and wanted to find a female singer to harmonise and play with. Oxley set her up with his friend's girlfriend, a woman named Trish Young. That so-called blind date led to a collaboration that has spanned decades. Jody and Trish formed Clouds, or sometimes The Clouds, in 1989, based in Sydney. They also found a drummer in the Mambo office, in Stuart Edel. Both women wrote and sang, which made them stand out, and there was more than a little crunch in their guitars, which clashed nicely against their sweet, harmonised vocals. They were fans of the Hummingbirds and Falling Joys, and saw their success as something to aim for. They were definitely part of this scene of guitar rock bands, with strong mixed representation of genders. They signed to indie label Red Eye, just as Red Eye got into bed with major label Polydor. Red Eye started back in 1985, tied to the seminal Sydney indie record store. It was run by John Foy, who knew it was the 90s and had to get into bed with a major label and start offering bands something more than they did in the 80s. Clouds was the first shot of putting a band on the Red Eye label into the major label distribution system. The first couple of Clouds EPs, Cloud Factory in 1990 and Loot in 1991, were greeted well by the Triple J crowd. Their film clips emphasised that they were young and two girls were up front and the sweetness of their voices bounced off the guitars. From the debut EP, here's Cloud Factory by Clouds, released in 1990 on Red Eye.
In the year-end alternative music singles chart in Australia for 1991, Clouds had three slots in the top four. The Loot EP was one, Cloud Factory was three, and Hieronymus was four. Number two was Def FX with their Water EP. In the year of Nirvana, Clouds were the biggest local so-called alternative band in the country. The last song, number four in that chart, Hieronymus, was the opening track and lead single for their debut album. Released on Red Eye in 1991, it was called Penny Century. Regarded as one of the very best albums of the decade by a lot of people, such as myself. Here's Hieronymus. Finally, the song about the 15th century Dutch painter Hieronymus Bosch that young Australia was waiting for. From the Clouds 1991 album, Penny Century. Like most debut albums of the 90s, this was a best of their early years with songs honed on the touring circuit. Soul Eater from the Loot EP was included along with plenty of exciting new rockers. All the elements of Clouds are here and mixed well. The guitars buzz, but not overwhelmingly, leaving room to fight against that sweet vocal. Even better is the often comically obscure and high-minded lyrics. It makes a classic record that is both a mysterious challenge and a lot of fun. Also from Penny Century, here's the wonderful second single, Anthem.
Nothing fancy, just new. I want something I can't explain. Give me a better Penny Century goes down as a classic album of Australian rock. It hit number 23 in the Australian charts and both Hieronymus and Anthem charted in the Australian Top 50. In the Triple J Hottest 100 of 1991, where the songs were from any year, Hieronymus was voted number 33. The Smiths' There Is A Light That Never Goes Out was 35. So Hieronymus is two better than The Smiths. 4pm, a track from Lute also made it to the list at number 67. Clouds were also nominated for an ARIA award in the Breakthrough Artist category alongside Ratcat. It was yet another step into mainstream success and soon they were being called the next big thing. Like all next big things from Australia, it seemed the logical thing to do was to head overseas. Heading to Europe and the US, Clouds started again from the bottom to indifferent audiences. Whilst their international career was being worked out, they kept writing and recording. A mini-album of eight tracks was released in 1992 called Octopus. Here is the single released from Octopus called Say It. Octopus charted at number 24, only one lower than Penny Century. It's surprising that the album exists at all. By this point, labels were trying to put the brakes on bands, trying to get them to not record so much. Leaving that gap between albums would extend the touring cycle without incurring any more studio costs. It also left more time for bands to tour outside the inner cities and get to the suburbs and to regional Australia. We will see more and more of this and bands with albums where they will release three, four, and even five singles. I guess Red Eye, being one step removed from a major label, were happy to keep a very indie schedule of almost an album a year. Or these were early days and the rules for labels like Red Eye were not yet set. Octopus is listed as an album on Discogs. It has eight tracks and I have plenty of albums with less than eight tracks. Clouds backed up Octopus with another album, a proper second album a year later. 1993 saw the release of Thunderhead. Thunderhead was preceded by the single Bower of Bliss, a blistering rocker. Here's the wonderful Bower of Bliss.
everything went to plan, Thunderhead would have been the album to make clouds global superstars. Inventive guitar rock that was hook-laden and sweet enough to win over the masses, but still noisy and weird. And speaking of weird, I still don't know what the songs are about. Their wonderfully mysterious lyrics charm and seduce you. The album charted at number 30, but none of the singles broke through. It was nominated for Best Alternative Release at the ARIA Awards alongside some incredible albums by The Cruel Sea, Dave Graney and UMI, the last of whom won it. During this time, Clouds managed to secure a major label deal with Elektra Records, the legendary Warner label in the US. Elektra had started as a folk label and transformed into the label for The Doors and other cool acts by the 60s. Elektra were a very interesting label in the early 90s. They were a major label with some of the most uncommercial acts ever to sign to a major. I'm talking bands like Ween, Stereolab and They Might Be Giants. It was a good time to be a band in the early 90s. A lot of labels were just taking bets on bands to see what might stick. And a label like Elektra were just taking a lot of bets. Yet, it wasn't like Elektra invested heavily in the band. In fact, they sat on the record for a while. The US version of Thunderhead, with a slightly altered track listing, was finally released in the US in 1995, a year and a half after it came out in Australia. It won't be the last album to be tweaked for the American market by an Australian band to feature in this podcast. But it was another clash of cultures. American labels were being ruled by radio departments and everything was being second-guessed. If it didn't work immediately on radio, things had to change. And US labels would make changes just for the sake of changes. Still, the album got some pretty good American reviews and clouds were lopped in as part of a scene of new women-fronted indie rock bands like The Breeders and Veruca Salt. But Elektra was going through its own upheaval and four months after the album was released in the US, the band was dropped by Elektra, as was every band that wasn't American and many who were. That's show business. And that was Cloud's one shot at major label success in America, gone at the snap of a finger. Back home, they had still been productive. Whilst waiting for Elektra to sort its shit out, they released a series of EPs, 1994's Beetroot and two in 1995, Aquamarine and Panel Van. All the releases did okay in the indie world, but by the mid-90s, it was all about crossing over to the mainstream, even in Australia. And Clouds were spending their time between the US and UK. A new generation of bands had taken hold in Australia at that time. Clouds released their third and final album, Futura, in 1996. Having released three albums, mini or otherwise, in three years in the early 90s, it had now taken three years for the album number four to see the light. They performed at the 1997 Big Day Out before breaking up. Futura failed to chart. Clouds in their first incarnation barely lasted eight years. Futura was one of the very last albums released on Red Eye as well. That label shut up shop in 1997 and Polygram didn't keep Jody or Trish on as solo artists. Cloud's first period ends with the contractual obligation Best Of in 1999 called Favourites. From Futura, the final Clouds album, here is the lead single, Here Now, released in 1996 on Red Eye.
Jodie did continue with solo albums and various bands. She actually released a lounge music solo album in 1996 on Red Eye. But after Clouds, she formed a band with her husband Tim Oxley called Deer Hunters, Deer with an A, who put out a lovely album called Red Wine and Blue in 1999. That album was released on Candle Records, a very important Melbourne label that we will discuss. The distortion pedals were put away for the sake of beauty. From Red Wine and Blue, here's Ivy by the Deer Hunters. followed it up with two solo albums proper in 2001 and 2003, also on Candle Records. Jodie and Trish would later do shows as The Girls from the Clouds in 2005, leading to a full reunion later. There was even a new Clouds EP in 2017. Phyllis released her sixth solo album in 2022 on Cheer Squad Records, a label run by Wally Meany, who put out reissues and new music by lots of 90s bands like Underground Lovers and Snout, as well as new bands. Jodie has pretty much travelled through several of the most important labels in Australia. Clouds, along with Falling Joys and the Hummingbirds, really led this Sydney scene of bands with boy-girl members with very strong, guitar-slinging women up front. Clouds at one point was probably the most popular of the lot, and probably the most likely of all the bands to make it big. They scraped into the mainstream and made incredible records. They had the big US label deal, the look, the songs, the whole thing. The only thing they did wrong in my book was they didn't have the luck. Along the way, they inspired a generation of Australian women to pick up guitars. There'd be no Magic Dirt or Super Jesus without Clouds and their peers. In 2019, 
three such women, Jen Cloer, Mia Dyson and Liz Stringer, formed a trio and released a song called Falling Clouds as a tribute. The song literally name drops Jodie and Trish, as well as Susie Higgie from Falling Joys. It also mentions that for some reason, these women have been unfairly written out of history. I have to agree with them. On the song they sing, underrated, overlooked, a woman's work is never done, or it's erased from history books. Nothing against Paul or Nick, but if you want to be remembered, then you better have a dick. Here's Falling Clouds by Dyson Cloa Stringer, the opening track from their self-titled album, released in 2019 on Milk Records. The best place to start with Clouds is still probably Penny Century, just one of the coolest and smartest albums of the 90s. It's also probably one of the most important albums of the 90s as well. It eventually went gold and it's their highest selling, most loved album. I would love a vinyl reissue please, Universal Music. The band does classic album shows and it really should be back on store shelves. There is a contractual obligation best of called Favourites, which collects a lot of the key tracks from the EPs into one place. Cloud's strange discography of three albums, a mini-album and five EPs means getting everything is a little difficult, so Favourites is a great place to get an overview. I guess it's all on streaming anyway. To end, from Penny Century, that great 1991 album, but also from their 1991 EP Loop, here's Soul Eater by Clouds. I am avoiding talking about bands who were big in the 80s who also continued into the 90s. So Nick Cave, who did a lot of work in the 90s, is not really going to be discussed here. He's an 80s guy for me. But at the end of the day, those rules are completely arbitrary and I'm just making it up as I go. Because Died Pretty are kind of an 80s band. They started in 83 in Sydney, formed by singer Ron Pino and guitarist Brett Myers, who as a pair wrote all the songs. But it took them until the 90s to make their breakthrough album, Doughboy Hollow, released in 1991. That album deserves to be discussed in a podcast about Australian music in the 90s. I know I'm talking a lot about Sydney bands and I promise that will stop soon. And that was one of the great things about the 90s, how bands would come from all over the country. But early 90s Sydney was where a lot of the labels were and a lot of the music industry ended up. And it was where a lot of bands would go. 
died pretty signed to Citadel, a great label run by John Needham, who also acted as the band's manager. That label had so many great bands in the 80s, Lime Spiders, New Christs, just to name two. Needham and Citadel had signed the Plunderers and helped Nick Dalton in the early days of Half a Cow. By the 90s, they were adjusting to the new mainstream spotlight on the indie scene. Died Pretty had released three albums already by 1991, 86's Free Dirt, 88's Lost, and 1990's Every Brilliant Eye. Each of those albums are acclaimed and loved by their devoted fanbase. The opening track from that first album, Free Dirt, is Blue Sky Day, one of their most loved tracks. Died Pretty had been growing with each album. Every Brilliant Eye was more polished than their previous work. It was also released on Blue Mosque, pretty much a vanity label for the band, but was a spin-off from Citadel Records. And Blue Mosque signed a distribution deal with big Australian label, Festival Records. We haven't talked much about Festival so far, a very important label in Australian history. We will get to them, and how they signed a lot of distribution deals with lots of indie labels. Basically, the same festival sales guy and promo guys worked on Died Pretty, and CDs would get sent on Festival Records trucks. But Festival didn't own the masters, instead they just made a cut of each album. If one of the bands broke through, it would be a pretty big win. This all set the stage for Doughboy Hollow. I saw Died Pretty play live years later before I ever heard this album, and Ron Pino is one of the most captivating frontmen in Australia. He's a short guy, but what he gave up in mass, he's converted into energy. Live, they are a rocking force. Pino's pain roar is one of the band's best tools. And he would throw himself around the stage whilst guitars stabbed the air around him. Died pretty live were a sight to behold. So when I first heard Doughboy Hollow, I was struck by the beauty of it. Everything sounds crystal clear, bringing the incredible songwriting and production details into sharp focus. The sound of this wild rock band holding back and playing nice creates an incredible tension and is part of what makes this album so captivating. Doughboy Hollow, by the way, is a place, a hollow that is a couple of hours out of Sydney. It is most famous as the site of a capture of a bushranger gang. The big song from the album was DC. A touching goodbye to a friend who died. From Doughboy Hollow, released in 1991, here's DC by Died Pretty.
song features violin from the go-betweens Amanda Brown. Mark Seymour of Hunters and Collectors calls this one of his favourite love songs. Triple J's audience loved it too and voted it the 34th best song of all time in the Hottest 100 of 1991. Bohemian Rhapsody was 49. It also helped that this was 1991 and people were listening to more indie music, Triple J was newly national, and there was a new audience to discover died pretty. DC was just one highlight from Doughboy Hollow. The album is a luscious mix of mystery and romance. It still sounds like a million bucks. A lot of albums I will, or have, talked about sound great, but they sound like the 90s. Doughboy Hollow transcends that for me. It's clear and timeless. The other big single from Doughboy Hollow was the rousing Sweetheart. From 1991, here's Sweetheart by Diet Pretty. Doughboy Hollow was showered with praise on release. Dave Faulkner of the Hoodoo Gurus has called Doughboy Hollow the best Australian album ever. It was nominated for three arias including Album of the Year. It is the first so-called alternative album of the 90s to be nominated for Album of the Year. The album charted at number 24 in Australia. It was released internationally on acclaimed indie label Beggar's Banquet who had released some Australian acts in the UK and the US. It put them on the radar of some cool kids, but it wasn't a big major label deal. It didn't come with a million bucks to make MTV level film clips and a tour of the world. Doughboy Hollow is remembered as an album that could have been a contender. None of the singles were big hits and it didn't turn Died Pretty into household names. I can only assume Festival were unable to capitalise on it because it had hit album written all over it. It was a missed opportunity, but one they had another chance to correct. The follow-up was 1993's Trace. In that time, the band had signed a deal with major label Sony, who figured on the back of Doughboy Hollow they were going to be the next big thing. Building off the momentum, Trace was highly anticipated, charting at number 11 in the charts. The second single, Harness Up, was their highest charting hit at number 35. It's a great song, so here's Harness Up by Die Pretty. Something wasn't working. Ron Pino didn't like the album and didn't do any interviews for it. It's never been clear why the band generally disowned this album. 
There's talk that the album felt too light, and it certainly lacks the emotional wallop of Doughboy Hollow. There seems to be some tension with Sony too, and I think that colours how the band feels about this period of their career. Still, Trace was released in the US, and they even made a US version of the film clip. This is the first of many Australian bands who would make a second film clip just for America in the 90s. The band still kept their core fans and remained a critical favourite in Australia and the world. Among those fans were the members of R.E.M., who chose them as the support band for their 1995 Australian tour. But even though Trace's chart numbers looked better than Doughboy Hollow, it was another missed opportunity. 1996's Sold followed, also on Sony, and an improvement on Trace. It's hard to look at an album title like Sold and not wonder if it had anything to do with selling out to a major label like Sony. It was rockier than Doughboy Hollow and Trace, which remained this pair of polished pop albums in their otherwise quite rocking career. It was the first of many albums that they would make with Wayne Connolly, the guitarist from the band The Welcome Mat, who produced acclaimed albums by UMI and The Foves. From Sold, here's Stop and Start. By then, 1996, rock music had changed so much and Died Pretty were one of the old guard and didn't really fit in with alternative rock circa mid to late 90s. The label didn't bother with promoting Sold and didn't make any film clips. This indie band tried the major label thing and it didn't work. Not surprisingly, after just two albums, Sony dropped Died Pretty. The rising scene that gave Died Pretty new life in 1991 ate them up by 1996. They were once darlings to an audience who wanted something new. Now they wanted something new again and Died Pretty wasn't it. The band did two more albums before breaking up in 2002, but of course the band has reformed to do the odd show or tour since, including a classic album show of Doughboy Hollow in 2008. In 2019, Ron Pino announced he had cancer, but a year later had managed to beat it and the band hit the road again. Fuck you, cancer. Doughboy Hollow is the album that should have been. It's this wonderful clash of jangly guitars, this booming bass, big sing-along choruses and emotional rawness. It's epic and intimate at the same time. It's mixed with a lot of piano and violin and it's just a gorgeous pop record. It is also very Australian sounding. It's so hard to quantify what makes music sound Australian, but the striped sunlight sound that the go-betweens talk so much about can be heard here. The romantic, fragile drawl of Nick Cave ballads are also here. I love the references to Australian places, and their artwork was always full of Australian landscapes. I really love this side of them, that Australian character to their work. I feel like the band were just a little too late. If they were making their pop rock in the mid to late 80s, they might have been more like Crowded House or Hunters and Collectors. Instead, they hit their peak at the same time as Nirvana, and they were a little too old. The industry and music fans were looking for other things. I actually think it speaks a lot about how good their music was that they actually cut through in the 90s at all. 
Doughboy Hollow has been reissued a couple of times. And the last time, the label decided to change the album cover, removing the nice stark white frame and blue text, and just having the photo of the car that's on the cover blown up to take over the whole frame. It is shit. It's like taking the London Calling album cover and removing the green and pink text and just having the photo. It's like colorizing Citizen Kane. The design and the photo works together, but at least you can buy the album and rip it, and you can change the artwork manually in iTunes. But if you listen to the album on streaming, maybe close your eyes at the travesty that is that album cover. You have to hear the record, but that album cover pisses me off. After Doughboy Hollow, there are several more great albums. Trace, the follow-up, is wonderful, even if the band hates it. Their pre-Doughboy Hollow stuff is still loved, and their second most acclaimed album is probably their first one, Free Dirt. There's a best-of called Out of the Unknown. Here's the thing, it doesn't actually have that single, Out of the Unknown, the song that gives that collection its name. And guess what? Neither Free Dirt nor Out of the Unknown, the very best-of, is available digitally. Someone should give the catalogue a bit of love, and a new best-of would help people discover their work and change that album cover of Doughboy Hollow back to the original. I've made a playlist on the site that recreates the out of a known best of with the tracks that are available digitally. I'll put a link on the website. Here's a song not on that best of, but it is on Doughboy Hollow. It's the lovely The Love Song by Die Pretty, released in 1991 on Blue Mosque. Her name was Sam, but she came from Mallow Her face was moonlight and her eyes were stars. Man who wore a Cheshire grin Whose heart was golden and his hands were thin And he was the most beautiful thing in her world But she cried out Don't love you Also released in 1991 was the only album by Sydney duo Club Hoy. The pair were and are Penny Flanagan and Julia Richardson, who made sweet, folky pop. It was this other side of alternative music, the side of alternative music that was not alternative rock. Just having two singer-songwriters make an album that was produced in an unadorned way was a reaction to the mainstream in the early 90s. Club Hoy released a single on the super-hip indie label Waterfront, before switching to regular records. Regular records in the 80s released albums by Metal As Anything and Ice House. At the time of the early 90s, they were looking at getting a piece of the indie rock pie. And Club Hoy was their best shot at pie. Their debut album was called Thursday's Fortune and was released in 1991. Here's the first single, House on Fire, which saw the duo transformed into a band, which is often how they played live. It was fun and light. 
band aside, it's still very much about Penny and Julia. Thursday Fortune is a sweet, insular, private little album. It fit more with Scottish twee pop than the Radio Birdman-dominated Sydney rock scene, yet, ironically, Rob Younger of Radio Birdman produced one of their early singles. It's a first album by two young musicians, and it might not have the deepest lyrics you've ever heard, but there is an alarming honesty. That emotional rawness matches the raw production. The other highlight is the mingling of the two voices. Penny and Julia's voices work great together. Thursday's Fortune didn't chart, and none of the singles charted either. Still, there was some label interest and the duo toured a lot and even did a showcase in America. They toured with lots of bands that we've talked about from Sydney. The Hummingbirds, Falling Joys, etc. They were a little different, they were more folky. They fit more into this other strand of alternative, a more new hippie, flower power folk thing. It is something we'll look more deeply into with bands like Frente and things of stone and wood, but if you check out Club Hoy's Green and Blue video, you'll see it. Club Hoy only lasted one more EP, the Trumpets EP, released in 1992. They played the first big day out that year, but the pair broke up shortly after. Penny Flanagan went on to a solo career, staying on regular records. She made a solo album, 1994's Bravado, and had a minor hit on the Triple J world with Lap It Up, making to number 52 in Triple J's Hottest 100 of 1994. Here's Lap It Up by Penny Flanagan. formed a new band called The Troublemakers with Bernie Hayes, who had joined Club Hoy as a guitar player. Bernie was one of the Hayes brothers from Canberra, who had brothers in Falling Joys and Plunderers, and would later make fantastic solo albums in his own right. Bernie and Julia would also get married. Although not as rock or aggressive as Clouds or even the Hummingbirds, Penny and Julia deserve credit for being another female-fronted indie act at the time. They also take their place as one of the bands to play the very first Big Day Out. But that sells short their achievements of making quite sweet indie pop. They only made that one album, Thursday's Fortune. Everything they made fit into one CD, and if anyone would like to just issue a collection called The Complete Club Hoy, that would be great. Like everyone, they occasionally do shows, but there's been no new music since 1992. The other single from Thursday's Fortune is one of the more upbeat songs. Here's Not Like That by Club Hoy, released in 1991.
Let's end with a look at the 1991 year-end chart. The Australian Music Report used to compile these and used to do an Australian-only version of the alternative chart. They dumped it this year because there was plenty of Australians in it anyway, as you will see. In the top 50 singles, 28 are Australian and an incredible 8 are in the top 10. As mentioned, 3 of the top 4 are Clouds. Here's what's in the top 10. Clouds EP Loot is number 1, led by the single Soul Eater. Def FX's Water EP comes in at 2. Cloud Factory and Hieronymus at 3 and 4 by Clouds. And Pixie's Planet of Sound EP breaks the Aussie streak. Henry Rollins teams up with the Hard-Ons for the ACDC song Let There Be Rock for number 6. If A Vow by The Hummingbirds at number 7. Don't Go Now by Ratcat at number 8. Jennifer by Falling Joys at number 9. All iconic songs for this incredible era of bands. Other highlights as we run down the charts include The Cruel Seas' I Feel at number 11. That band would be set for a big breakthrough very soon. Died Pretty's Wonderful DC is at 12. There's other singles from newcomers such as The Meanies and Crow who we will get to. Over in the alternative albums, 24 albums in the top 50 are Australian and 5 in the top 10. Ratcat's Tingles EP is at number 1. Their album Blind Love is at number 19, probably because it did well, but it was only released in the later part of the year. Died Pretty's Doughboy Hollow and the Humming the Died Pretty's Doughboy Hollow and the Hummingbird's Vava Voom are at 4 and 5. Falling Joy's Wishlist is at 8, and the Australian world music pop group Not Waving Drowning were at 10. Cloud's Penny Century comes in at 20, and like Blind Love, it wasn't out for very long in the 1991 calendar year. Other highlights include The Hard-Ons with Yummy at 21, Tor and True with the Superstition Highway EP at 31, and the Cruel Seas, This Is Not The Way Home at 45, and finally, Killjoy's Ruby at 46. That's it for this episode, and in a few episodes' time, we'll travel further into the future and look at bands from 1992. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Just Ace podcast. If I've timed this right, and it's going to be tight, the first ever Just Ace related live event will happen in Sydney this week. Still finalising the details, but I'll be talking to a couple of key folk from this very episode at a bar in Sydney's Inner West for free. Once it's all locked away, it'll be on our website and on social media. So keep an eye out at just ace 90s which is just ace 90s on social media or just ace 90s.com otherwise back to the usual support stuff where you can find all the links to the following stuff in the description there's a patreon and thanks to all the patrons it's only three dollars a month and 36 dollars a year and it all goes to keeping this podcast ad free and to pay for any hosting costs and buy me a coffee i get coffees from people all the time now and thank you very much i appreciate it a lot you can also buy a Just Ace poster. The links, again, are in the description. I've already plugged the socials. Uh, and the last thing, as always, is tell a friend. Where are all those people that I was at home bake with in 1998? Where are the younger music fans who, like me at that age, just wanted to discover stuff? If you know these people, spread the word. And leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Okay, that's it. Next week, we've gone on enough about bands. 
Next week, we look at how some Japanese scientists changed the way music was made in the 90s. Start again.